0: And now if we would turn together to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the first 24 verses. I'll start by reading the very first section to set our minds on this passage. 1 Kings chapter 12, the first five verses. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten The hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That we might know you better that we might love you better, that we might serve you better. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of watching a film or reading a book about a historical event where you already know from external sources what's going to happen? Say, for example, you were watching a film about Pearl Harbor or the Battle of Gettysburg or the lead-up to the great 1929 crash in Wall Street. You can watch it, but there's a part of you that kind of gets anxious Because you know what's going to come. You know there's bad news right around the corner. And you just wait to see how it works itself out. And oftentimes, if the film or book is only loosely related to reality, one of these based upon a true story, sometimes you wonder how they're going to manipulate the characters to get to the outcome. You're watching it and you say... You know, I know he's supposed to die, but I wonder how. What are they going to do? Sometimes, especially in historical passages like this, the Bible can seem like that to us. We come to this text this morning, and it's almost an afterthought, because you and I already know what's going to happen. We looked at it last week, didn't we? God has told us exactly what is going to happen to the kingdom of Israel. And so we sit back and we wonder, how is it going to happen? And oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we look and we think, well, is this going to happen against everyone's will, just so that God's word remains true? Or we say, I wonder if God knew ahead of time what was going to happen, and he worked his word ...to coincide with it. Well, this morning is a wonderful passage that serves to us as a warning. It serves to us as a promise of the gospel. And it shows to us, I think, in a nutshell of narrative... ...the way in which God interacts with his people. There's a lot to be seen here. We're going to move quickly throughout the narrative... As we look at this story, the first thing that we will see is the stage is set in the first five verses. The stage for this great drama is set. You can almost imagine the workers with two-by-fours, hammers and nails, building up the stage on which this drama is going to take place. And then the second thing, we are invited to sit in on a royal conference. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reacts just as so many sons do between the ages of four and eight. You're talking, but I'm not listening. That's essentially what he says. You're talking, but I'm not listening. My mind is already made up. And then, inevitably, we see the outcome of the story. Of this great drama, the outcome. And then finally, and most importantly, we see the story behind the story. Well, let's take a look then, diving in here at the beginning of our chapter 12. The stage is set, and the first thing we see is the man who would be king. And you say, Well, I thought Rehoboam was the king, he's the son of Solomon. Isn't that what happens? When Queen Elizabeth dies, Prince Charles takes the throne. The oldest son, he's the crown prince, he becomes king. But I need to remind you that this is an early stage in the kingdom of Israel. There have really only been three kings. And if we look at their succession, it is nothing ordinary about it. Saul becomes king by being anointed by the prophet David becomes king while Saul is still king. And they reign, in a sense, over different portions of Israel together. And then Solomon is the beneficiary of some good advice and swift movement by his supporters to stay ahead of Adonijah. You see, there is no obvious succession here. So, Rehoboam is not the king Yet, But he is initiating the fact that he wants to be king. And so he gathers together all of Israel at Shechem. Now, Shechem is a place, if you don't have a Bible map in the back of your Bible, you can just picture the land of Israel. It's right about in the middle of what becomes the northern kingdom of Israel. It's about two-thirds of the way up the combined kingdom. It's clearly in northern territory. And you might ask yourself, well, why doesn't he gather them at Shechem? Or, excuse me, at Jerusalem? Why at Shechem? And that's a good question. Bible scholars ask it all the time. They're not sure. But I think we can see it in two aspects. The first is that he already knows there's difficulty with the northern tribes. My guess is that Solomon has said something to him about difficulty with the north. He may not have relayed the entirety of the prophecy, but he surely at least warned him that there would be trouble from the ten tribes. So, Rehoboam goes north. Shechem is also a very famous place, although it doesn't really appear in the annals of David or Solomon or the kings that follow them. You may remember it as the place in Joshua 24 where Israel renewed their covenant with the Lord. It's also the place where Joseph's bones are buried. So it's an important historical place. And all of Israel gathers together there to hear from Rehoboam. But Rehoboam isn't the only man who would be king. There's also a man by the name of Jeroboam. And yes, it's okay at times to get them confused. They do rhyme. But Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. Jeroboam is that man, the son of Nebat, who was one of Solomon's servants who had fled to Egypt because the Lord had told him he would be king over the first ten tribes. He was afraid of Solomon. He had run away Because he didn't want to be killed. And notice what happens now. At the beginning of our text, we see he's still in Egypt. And he finds out that Rehoboam is now there to be king. And what's the first thing he does? He comes back. Not so afraid anymore. We already see in that little text the difference between Solomon and Rehoboam. Jeroboam isn't afraid at all of Rehoboam. Remember that as we hear Rehoboam's boast later. Jeroboam says, oh, this guy, the son is in power now. I'm going to go back and see what happens. So he comes back, and he already has the trust of the people. You see, Rehoboam gathers together Israel, and Israel wants to hear from him. But look at what Israel does. They send for Jeroboam, and they call him, and they make him their spokesman. Look at how often his name appears in that first paragraph. You see, he already has an in. We might even say that he is the front runner. You might not think of it that way, but I think the text wants us to think of it that way. The second thing we see in the stage is the people who would be servants After we've seen the man who would be king, we see the people who would be servants. All of Israel comes together. That includes the tribe of Judah. And they come and they raise a legitimate complaint with Rehoboam. They don't come asking for favors. They don't come asking for special treatment. They don't even come asking for relief from all of service. They just say, could you please treat us a little bit better? Could you lighten our load? There's reason to believe that historically, men from the north were drafted to do forced labor to build Solomon's projects in the south. Further exacerbating tension between north and south. They don't trust each other. We might think of it this way. You see, we look at this text and we think, well, look at, these folks are trying to stir up trouble. They're only trying to look out for themselves It's the way in which many of us, for example, will view unions 40, 60, 80 years ago by today's standards. We don't realize that the unions operated in a different world in 1930 than they do in 2000. That there you could die on the job easily. That there you could be paid next to nothing. That there were monopolies. That there was a reason for workers to come together. So don't bring your presuppositions here to the text, thinking the bad guys are out to get Rehoboam. But then also don't think, well, these guys are just trying to get what they deserve. Because they're also doing a bit of politicking. The the language that they use is very interesting. They say, we need relief from the hard service and from this yoke. You know what that language would remind an Israelite of? Egypt. It's the same language. Do you remember when it was said that Pharaoh made the Israelites life hard? Same word. And they were in bondage with hard service. Same words. They had a yoke upon them. So they are playing this up for all that it is worth. They're exaggerating for effect. So you can already see there's a big tension going on here. So what's going to happen? Well, Rehoboam says, time out. I don't want to give you an answer now. Come back in three days. Don't you all wish you could do that? When there's difficulty in the home or difficulty at work, time out. Come back in three or four days. I'll give you my answer. Well, Israel says, okay, we'll give you three days and we'll go off. And Rehoboam then goes and speaks to his advisors. But as we've said, he says, You're talking, but I'm not listening. And what are they saying to him? First, he goes to these old men, elders, and they basically say, Think of your future. Rehoboam, be wise like Solomon. Think of your future. You see, they know that he is marked by indecision. A strong king wouldn't say, I need three days to figure this out. A strong king wouldn't say, I need to ask different sets of advisors. Right? A strong king answers the phone at 2 a.m. and makes the call that he needs to make. To use a modern analogy. You don't have three days when enemies are bearing down on you. So the old men, the elders, know that they have a weak and indecisive man in their midst. I mean, could you imagine saying, hold on a minute, while your house was flooding or on fire? We don't like that even today. Do you remember, to use a modern politician, do you remember Colin Powell about ten years ago? I might run, I might not. Maybe I'll run, well, maybe not. I haven't decided Well, maybe I'll decide. After a while, the American people just said, enough already. Make a decision. Some of us even get frustrated on draft day. Watching as the team takes it to the final seconds because they can't decide, do they want a quarterback, a running back, or a defensive end? And you say, enough already. You should know going in what you need. Same for Rehoboam here. Shouldn't he know what's going on? Shouldn't he have a plan? You see, the problem here with Rehoboam is that he lets his inability to see how today affects eternity affect his life. Do you have that problem? My guess is sometimes when you're in the midst of doing something today, you don't think of eternity. You don't think of grand endings. You don't think of standing before God. You think this is just time-out time, in-between time. But you see, the text here pushes you to realize that what you do today counts. It matters. And nowhere is that more true in the call of the gospel, is it? So many of us think we can put off the call of the gospel. Well, like Felix, maybe tomorrow you will persuade me. Today is the day of salvation, says Paul in Romans. That's true for the Christian as well. Today is the day to mortify sin. Not tomorrow. Today is the day to love your neighbor. Indecisiveness causes great problems. So Rehoboam doesn't know what to do, and he starts with these old men that I would like you to read their elders. I think this is one of these occasions where it could be translated either way, but elders is a better translation. That Hebrew word is translated almost everywhere else as elder. And it should have the connotation that you think it should have. These are the men that sat and ruled with Solomon. These are the men who stood by, as the Queen of Sheba said. How happy are your men who stand by and hear your wisdom. They are the beneficiaries of that. They are experienced. They know politics. They know the kingdom. They know the temple. These are wise and godly men. And we see that in their answer. Look at how they answer. The first thing they do is they answer humbly. They say, listen, if you will be a servant to this people today, Can you imagine saying that to a king? A king in this area of the world at this time, who everywhere else in the world, if he didn't like the way the pear looked on his plate, could have the cook killed. They say, be a servant. Be humble. They give a humble answer. They also point him toward the long-term benefit. They say, if you'll be a servant today, then... They will be your servants forever, literally all the days. Listen, humble yourself now, serve them now, and the benefit will be that they will serve you forever. Wisdom and common sense. You see, they don't want Rehoboam to make a rash decision. We know about the problems of rash decisions, don't we? One quip that I think gets... To the point quickly is we say this, a moment on the lips, what? A lifetime on the hips. That's with food, but it's true, isn't it? How many of us think about the decisions we need to make right now and the impact they will have on our lives for decades? Do you think about that when you choose a college, young people? Or are you more worried about what colors the team has? how big the building is? Are you worried about is there a good local church there? Can you have skills where you can support a family? Will you make good Christian friends and have fellowship? Do you think about that when you choose a job or a house? You see, these decisions affect us over a period of time. And the wise men give wise counsel. And so what does Rehoboam do? He nods his head, says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me go get back with my boys. Let's see what they think. So he goes over to the young men. Now, I want you to notice something here. I've told you that little words in the Bible mean something, especially pronouns. I want you to notice where Rehoboam's loyalty loyalty lies. He needs three days to make a decision, and he wants to consult with two groups. He comes to the first group, and he says, in verse 6, How do you advise me to answer this people? Then he goes to the young men, and in verse 9 he says, What do you advise that we answer? Do you notice that? Old men, what do you think? My guys, what are we going to do? His loyalty's already there. It's ironic because he's not a young man. He's not a young buck. He's 41 years old, chapter 14 tells us. But it makes sense with his personality. He's insecure. He's indecisive. He's got to hold a rally to make sure he's king. He needs three days to decide. He's already made up his mind, but... He wants to be supported. He needs a cadre of yes-men. This is Rehoboam's personality. Don't think he's just some doddering fool that listens to the wrong set of advice. No. If they were all out sick, he would say the same thing. It's part of his character. And these young men answer proudly and insecurely. They don't say, if you would be a servant, if you would like to do, they say, thus you shall answer. Give it to them and give it to them good. They'll take it and they'll like it. Because you're the king. And as a matter of fact, you know who they act most like? Pharaoh. Thus, we all remember, many of us remember, the movie, So Let It Be Written, So let it be done. That's what these young Turks are saying. Your word is law, Rehoboam. It doesn't matter that they've come to you with a plea. Act like Pharaoh. Do you see the depths to which the people of God have fallen? It started out with squabbling at the beginning of Solomon's reign, and then it moved to some difficulties. And then we saw Solomon being chastised for taking many wives, including the daughter of the Pharaoh. We saw him building temples. And now we see the man who would be king over the people of God acting like their taskmaster from Egypt. He wants to be Pharaoh, part two. Notice the language here. It's not enough to say, I'm a bigger man than my father. He says, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'll discipline you with scorpions. It's kind of like cat of nine tails. Barbs on the ends of whips to rip flesh. Now, where do whips come out of here? Why bring up whips and beatings? It's because they have that in their heart. It's harsh nasty. He says, My little finger is bigger than my father's thighs. I am. You thought my father was big with the temple and all the trade routes? You ain't seen nothing yet. And I want you to know that this comment is deliberately crude. The translation inserts the word finger. These men are rude, Crude, insincere, and they are full of themselves. And Rehoboam loves it. He just loves it. And you see, we see a snapshot here of leadership. The servant versus the tyrant. And Rehoboam chooses the tyrant. And then we see then the outcome of the story in verses 16 and following. We see that there is trouble in Shechem. Now, we have to ask ourselves, this trouble comes on. Are we really surprised? You know, there's already tension. A rival has already been brought in to be the spokesman for the other party. And now, the king says, I'm going to beat you, tax you, hurt you, and make you miserable. Are we surprised that they walk away from the table? Should Rehoboam be? You know, sometimes... We act as if we're surprised when others are offended by our language or by our attitude. We need to examine our own hearts first. Because you see, Rehoboam certainly didn't do that. They reject all reconciliation. They use very hard language. To your tents, O Israel! What portion do we have in David? Verse 16... We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your house, David. They have their minds made up To Now we know the rest of the story here. We know the misery that's going to plague Israel for decades. But I want you to notice something here from this text. Neither party was willing to reconcile. Neither party was willing to be the bigger man. Neither party was willing to serve. They both were, to use a biblical turn of phrase, stiff-necked people. That is what busts up the shine on the people of God. That kind of infighting, divisiveness from within. They use very strong language. It's the same language that Sheba used in his rebellion in 2 Samuel 20. And the New Living Translation puts it pretty starkly here in verse 16. They translate, look now to your own house, David, as down with David and his dynasty. Now, can you imagine that? Who cares what God promised We hate everybody that has everything to do with David. Forget about you. We're going our own way. Their anger has gotten the better of them. And they're walking away from God. And then we see a precursor to an ancient nursery rhyme. We see Israel has become Humpty Dumpty. All the kings and all his people... And all his young men and their horses and whatever cannot put the kingdom back again. This one event, over the course of three days, forever obliterates the kingdom of Israel. It breaks it into two. And Rehoboam still just doesn't get it. He doesn't see the problem because he responds even more forcefully. Look at verse 18. He hears they leave, and what's his response? You know what I'll do? I'll show them. I'm going to send up my meanest taskmaster. The guy who is in charge of the forced labor over the Canaanite slaves. Then they'll get the picture. I'll send up, in verse 18, Adore them. He'll show them what's what. He'll teach them how the cow eats the cabbage. They'll see what kind of a man I am. That I am bigger than my father. What happens there? The northern tribes are not quite impressed. They stone him. And then, Rehoboam says, "Um, I think my uncle's calling me. And he dashes off. He's not really that big of a man. He thinks he is the trait of ungodliness, when we think we are more than we are. So he runs back to Israel. He runs for his life. He realizes, I don't think I can fix this very quickly. But then he goes as far as he possibly can. He doesn't hear what God is saying to him in in all of this. He goes and he raises 180,000 men. He thinks he is going to fix this. He is going to go against God's word. He's going to go against the power of the northern tribes. He's going to go against a popular king. And he is going to force people to like him and respect him. Because they should. Because I said so. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you felt like that at work. Maybe you felt like that with your kids when they just wouldn't listen to you about where to go to college. Or how to prepare for marriage. Or how to prepare for having children. You see, one of the things the scripture teaches us is that we can't fix everything. We try to. But sometimes we can't, because sometimes when, like Rehoboam, we're trying to fix, we are kicking against the goads. We are going upstream against the providence and decree of God. And we're not stopping and listening, and listening to see what God is saying to us in this. So Rehoboam, he keeps trying it. He won't stop. He's a little bit like the black knight in the Monty Python film. After both his arms and his legs have been caught off, he says, I can still take you. Come on. But the reason he can't do anything is because we see the story behind the story. We see it in verse 15 and in verses 21 to 24. We may stop and think and say, oh, this is horrible. Israel is divided. How could this happen? How could God allow this to happen? How could he allow someone as unfaithful as Rehoboam to get on the throne? How could he not stop it? Oh, well, I guess he's not in control of the will of Rehoboam. He's not in control of Jeroboam. God is standing there wringing his hands saying, If only my people would obey me, then we could be a shining city on a hill. Not. Verse 15 Pulls the curtains back. In the midst of all this drama, so the king did not listen to the people, and we know it was already in his personality and character not to do that. He wasn't forced, he wasn't given only bad advice. He did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill. His word. You see, this is not just a nice moral story. This is not just, kids, listen to your elders and don't listen to your peers. This is not just, you ought to be humble. Although there are elements of both of those things. This is a story that God is directing and behind all events. It's as if God says, you know, Rehoboam, you want to be like Pharaoh? You don't know the half of it. Just like Pharaoh was obstinate, and just like he had it in his heart to not let Israel go, it was so that I would be glorified, and I was in charge all of the time. All of the time. You see, it's Rehoboam's desire, but it's God's decree. Do you notice that? Rehoboam's not a robot here. He's not going through the motions. He's got real passion and real anger and real insecurity. But God is behind all of it. He's not surprised by any of this. He's completely in charge. We should take comfort from that. That even in the worst of situations, God is in charge. He is fulfilling His word. And that word is a word of judgment. This is the Lord's judgment on Israel. It's pretty scary. But I want you to notice something else. It's not just the Lord's judgment. We also see the Lord's grace. God's grace? How? By preserving Judah for his promise. Same kind of language. All Israel, but Judah. I'm going to take the kingdom away, but Judah. God's grace is found there. And God's grace is even found in the way in which he deals with Rehoboam. He stops him from going up with the army. If Rehoboam is raising a huge army to contradict God's word, what do you think the fate of that army is going to be? I'm not a betting man, but I lay my money on they get smoked. God intervenes. He saves 180,000 men. And he saves Rehoboam over Judah by his grace, for his covenant, for his servant David. And Rehoboam finally listens. He finally gets it. Sometimes your life feels like Rehoboam's. Doesn't it? All the twists and turns are against you. You don't know what's going to happen. You feel like judgment upon judgment upon judgment is coming down on you. Remember that God's grace is found for his people in his covenant. God's covenant can be, by our actions, uglified. Yes, I just coined that. Uglified. But it cannot be nullified. You cannot work your way into God's good graces. You cannot work your way out of God's good graces. You must lean upon His covenant, His promise, His Son, His mediator. This is what we see even in the midst of difficulties in the church. It's hard sometimes as we look around and see all of the shattered bodies and bad teaching and everything else in the church to understand the promise of God that God's church is marching forward all the time. But that's God's grace. You see, that's one of the reasons why this story is here. It's not just to tell us who to take advice from. It's to warn us of God's judgment and to point us to God's grace. This is the story of the division of the two kingdoms. A lot can happen in three days, right? The whole kingdom can get ruined. There's something else that can happen in three days too, isn't there? In three days... An entire universe can be redeemed by the resurrection of the Son of God. A lot can happen in three days. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this story. We pray, O Lord, that you would show us compassion, show us mercy that you would drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.